there is beauty and there is brokenness. And I, I don't think you can really have one without the other in our world. You can ignore one for the other. And I think if we close our eyes to the brokenness, we do ourselves a disservice. We're not really recognizing the truth of the world. But if we only look at the brokenness and we don't accept the beauty that's there as well, then it's it's not good for our hearts. And so it's it's opening our eyes to see that there is both. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. I first got to know Rachel Donahue when she took one of my online writing classes. She's been a pillar of the community in the Habit membership ever since it started. So it made me very happy when she published a collection of her poems with Bandersnatch Books. It's called Beyond Chittering Cottage. Jen Rose Kell said, The poems in Beyond Chittering Cottage spin the smallest observations into celebrations and hum with the joy of being alive. Rachel Donahue, I'm so glad you are with me today on the Habit Podcast. Thank you. It is an honor to be here. So your new collection of poems, new-ish, um, yes. is Beyond Chittering Cottage. Mm-hmm. And it's very much a collection that is informed by place, by your yes. your place in North Carolina. Yes. About that. Yes. Yeah. It, um, we, we had lived a very um, nomadic life for the first dozen years of our marriage. We were overseas workers. We were living in Spain. And when we were stateside, we were usually traveling, visiting churches, raising uh-huh. support. And so... Um, when we came off the field in 2015, um, we had not been, I think, in any home longer than two years. And that was in Spain, <laughs> in an apartment uh-huh. in urban in, in Malaga, um, in the middle of the city. And so um, when we settled here, it was it was very different because we came back close to Mick's family. Um, they had Mick been on the same husband. property. Huh? Mick is your husband. Yes, Mick is my husband. Um, we moved back close to his family and the family greenhouse business. Mm-hmm. And his family had been here. Mick's family has lived on the same street his entire life. Oh, and wow. every neighbor on that street has been there Mick's entire life. <laughs> and he has an uncle and an aunt and cousins who live nearby. And so I think he was the first one in the family, including grandparents all the way down to grandchildren, the first one to move more than like a hundred miles away from home. And that was when he came to college. And so, um, and then we moved very far away to Spain. So when we came back, we were coming back to people who were very deeply rooted in place. And so that was something new for us in our marriage. And so um, he went back to work in, in the family greenhouse business and I was at home with our three children. And that Mm -hmm. was an adjustment period because we had always been working together in everything we were doing in ministry, in creative projects. It was always collaboration with the two of us. And so he was suddenly working outside the home, gone long hours. And I was here with the children and didn't really have many relationships and didn't really have a purpose outside of what I was doing here. Uh So um, it was, it was a, it was a hard transition time for sure. And that's when you you wrote these poems in that transition time? I wrote the poems after that transition. So um, the the beginning of 2017, we had been back about a year and a half at that point. Um, We had just moved into our house here 
Uh, we had been living in the in mixed grandparents' farmhouse, which is right across our backyard. Uh-huh. And so um, the house that we live in is in a, a neighborhood, and they had built this neighborhood behind the family property. And so we had the opportunity, an amazing opportunity, to build a house right here, close to family land. And um, it was the first week of 2017. Our daughter was a few months old, um, and I had been struggling with what is my purpose. I mean, my first purpose is as, is as a wife and a mother, and that's always been priority for me. But I couldn't get rid of this restlessness that just had been lingering for a couple of years. And so I spent the first week of 2017 um, in a social media fast, really seeking what God had for me and the children in this new season. When Mick was working, he was gone all the time. I didn't really know what God had for us. And it was during that week that God brought me back to literature and poetry. Mm-hmm. And just very quickly after that is when the, poet, the, the, the poetry came for me mm-hmm. to, to begin writing. Uh-huh. And once it came, it was like a flood that yeah. was suddenly unstopped. And um, I think within 48 hours of the first poem I wrote, I had half a dozen poems. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it was, it was a new, it was life-giving just after having this restlessness and really seeking what God had, just being in that place of submission, looking for what he had for me, this was, it was, it was a gift. It it really was just a life-giving change. So I want to talk about the difference between you've used the word restlessness twice. Mm -hmm. I was expecting you to be using words more like rootedness, right? Mm. Because this is, this is a, these poems are coming out of, of you you know, getting a little more connected to the place where you right. are, being a little more rooted. What's the relationship between restlessness and rootedness in your you in know, this, the I process think, by which these came to be? Yeah, I've I've always been content wherever I am, mm-hmm. um, and that's that. Mick and I have talked about this a lot because when we lived in Spain, I was very content there, very content. And even with all of our transitions, I was able to just kind of put down roots and and enjoy being in the place where we were, no matter how mm-hmm. transitory it was, um, and felt very keenly that this world is not our home. Mm-hmm. I mean, that lifestyle kind of lends itself to not feeling like this is where we are meant to be long-term. Mm-hmm. But whenever... I came into writing, the writing satisfied that restlessness. And with the writing came opportunity to observe the place around me. And it was in that close observation of where I am and paying attention to what's around me that I found the deeper rootedness of Mm. the place that we're in right now. Yeah. Yeah. In your introduction to this collection, you talk about, um, you, you mentioned stewardship, right? That, that in this piece of property where y'all live, that's been in the family for a long time. How many generations? Yeah. I mean, there are um, great grandparents. So there, right? I found out recently that the property behind the neighborhood over behind us goes back five generations in mixed family. Mm. So his grandparents, but then I think his grandmother had built a house right behind her parents. Uh-huh. And, and I think maybe her grandparents had lived there as well. I, it was, it was, or maybe our children are the fifth generation. Uh-huh. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And so, um, that's, there's a lot more history that here than I expected there to be initially. And, um, it's, it's a, 
even for my husband, like Mick grew up rabbit hunting in the uh -huh. fields where there now stands a neighborhood. And mm -hmm. so that was the fact that his memory goes farther back than what is here now really lends something to how I see this place. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was starting to ask the question of stewardship. You know, you said mm. this, this property has been in, in the family for several generations mm -hmm. um, and has, you know, it, you've talked about stewarding that, that piece of property. Um, right. What's in, in your mind, what's connected between stu stewardship and writing? Right. Um, I think so. We, we are very conscious. Mick and I both have been conscious of the fact that everything that we own ultimately belongs to God. It is not ours. It is entrusted mm -hmm. into our care for the time that we're here. And we feel like that we are stewards of what he's given us, um, that we're merely managing these things, not just monetary resources, but our time and our energy, um, the property that we live on, um, mm -hmm. the opportunities that Mick has as the owner of a business. Um, mm -hmm. That's We feel like we are going to give an account for these things one day. And so we feel like we have to keep good stewardship of these. And I feel like writing is just an extension of that. Mm -hmm. As a woman who has had the opportunity to be educated in a world where I, I mean, even especially with the news lately of everything that's happening in Afghanistan, it makes me even more grateful for the opportunities I've been given. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's something to be stewarded as well. Mm -hmm. And being given the words and the inspiration to write, that's, it has come as a gift, but on the flip side of that, I also feel like it's something I, I need to be responsible with. And so I put forth the effort to really work on my craft because I feel like I need to be faithful with this part of my life as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure this, I know this topic has come before on this podcast and we've talked about some of the, the habit membership I know, but the idea of, of having a mindset of, uh, rather you know, being territorial in, in the way you think about your work instead of hierarchical, instead of trying to figure out where, you know, how do I rank compared to other writers mm -hmm. or other poets or whatever. Um, really thinking in terms of I've got a patch of ground that's been entrusted to me. And, right. and I, as I steward and, and tend and nurture that, that patch of ground, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's how I know if I'm, you know, pursue my call and do my work. Not there's, that's the only, there's no other scorecard. Right. Really, right. That makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, that reminds me of a conversation that I had with a friend. Um, they were doing missions work in central Asia while Mick and I were in Southern Spain and we reconnected in the Nashville, they're in the Nashville area. Her husband is pastoring and she is working with, um, girls who have been rescued from human trafficking mm -hmm. and she's doing a really powerful work. And that's an opportunity that I would love to be a part of something like that. And I don't have the ability to be engaged in the ministry that she's doing in the way that she's doing it. But as we were talking over lunch one day and I was telling her about my writing and the story that I was working on and things like that, she said, I, I don't even think like that. I don't, I can't even comprehend how somebody can think of something other than what it is like in metaphor and <laughs> symbol. She said, I don't even, that's just a completely foreign concept to her. And it just kind of brought it home that God has given me this thing 
And I can be faithful in stewarding this thing the same way that she has been faithful in stewarding the thing that she's been given to do. Yeah. God has gifted her and equipped her to do that ministry. And he's gifted me and equipped me to, to do this thing. And yeah. it's, it's an opportunity. And um, I'm really thankful for it. Yeah, that's great. By the way, Chittering Cottage, is, is that a, one of the buildings on the property is called Chittering it, College? Cottage? That is the name that I gave to our home when we built it. Um, it. I had always thought about naming places where we lived, but most of the places where we lived didn't really lend themselves to being named. <laughs> when you're in an apartment in the middle of the city. Its name is Apartment 6B. That's exactly right. <laughs> and so, um, but then, you know, we were building this house. And it was one of those early desires that I wanted to give it a good name because mm -hmm. I knew this was going to be a place that we were going to be for some time. I wasn't sure how long. We've already been here longer than we expected to be yeah. in, initially. Um, but the the name Chittering Cottage actually came from the two noises that I heard most frequently mm -hmm. while they were building our house. And it's the chittering of our children and the <laughs> chittering of the birds outside in the uh -huh. woods behind uh -huh. our house. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that's it. You're like uh, you're like Anne of Green Gables giving names to places. <laughs> and, you know, she she always feels Maybe like so. to, but as she <laughs> says, if, if 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 I see a thing and it doesn't have the name I think it ought to have, I just rename it. Basically, that's it's right. It needs a good name. Yeah, that's right. Well, okay. What what a what a brilliant transition to what I was wanting to talk about next. The and that's birds. There's birds all in your collection of poem, poems. Yeah, and I'm, that's. I'm, yeah, and, and and they do. Now I'm sorry. Now I'm in, now I'm interrupting you. I didn't mean to. No, go ahead. Um, the the but these birds aren't all that sweet in your in your poems. I mean, I'm sure right. there are some sweet ones, but but you're, I think the first bird poem uh, is you call music, mm -hmm. and it starts. You know, it starts out. We're thinking this is going to be a you know a nice. Uh, poem about bird song. It's called music. There's, mm -hmm. there's birds. You, you say you step out and you hear the birds singing. And next thing I know, there's this aerial battle going on between the, the little birds and, and the crows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and then you end with these lines that I love these cries and calls, they are a groaning, but when I close my eyes, I still hear music. Mm -hmm. And since I've got you, tell me about that. You, so so you you have zeroed in on the unmusical part of bird communication, the right. squawking and the fighting. What right. do you, you say you still hear music? Well, one of one of the things that I have started doing since we moved into this house is birding. Mm -hmm. um, and I still feel like I'm a complete amateur. I don't know bird calls just by sound. I know a few. Um, mm -hmm. I'm learning more. But I am completely distracted. If I see a bird outside the window, you can forget whatever I'm working on. I'm, I'm just going to watch. And so um, there was one morning that I had seen the birds unusually active. And so I just stepped out on the patio. I left whatever I was doing at the time and just walked outside just to watch and listen. And, you know, our children always talk about, oh, the squirrels are playing tag. And, you know, they <laughs> when they're chasing each other around the trees and who knows what they're actually doing. Yeah. Um, but so there was kind of this fanciful idea at first that this one bird is chasing another one. And and it did seem playful. But I stood and I watched just to see what was happening. Why are all yeah. these birds so active? And that's when I noticed that the crows were coming in and, you know, they're 
they would be happy to steal whatever they can find. And <laughs> yeah. these little birds are are trying to protect their nests. And so it it's not kind of, I mean, it really sort of is this aerial battle that the little ones are chasing the bigger ones and, mm-hmm. and they're trying to scare them away. And eventually they leave, but then they come back. Like I just uh-huh. stayed and I watched uh, what is happening here. And it really, the that's where the groaning came from. Like, I can't ignore the fact that this is part of the brokenness of our world, but I still hear birdsong. There's music mm-hmm. in that birdsong and there's beauty there as well. And so it's both and that mm-hmm. there is beauty and there is brokenness, but, and I, I don't think you can really have one without the other in our world. You can ignore one mm. for the other. Yeah. And I think if we close our eyes to the brokenness, we do ourselves um, a disservice. We're not really recognizing the truth of the world, but if we only look at the brokenness and we don't accept the beauty that's there as well, then it's it's not good for our hearts. And so mm-hmm. it's it's opening our eyes to see that there is both. Yeah. That's great. I I um I didn't notice that pattern. Uh, you know, the pattern of uh you know in this collection, uh this pattern of you looking at looking at things until they sort of give up some secrets. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, I I actually, I think I take that from uh, the model of Solomon in the Proverbs when he says that he passed by this field and he saw that the wall was falling down and like it's overgrown. And he said, um, I saw it. I learned like, oh, what's the verse? Um, he says, then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. And that's when he's talking about a little sleep, a little slumber, a little mm. folding of the hands to rest and poverty creeps in um, like a robber and want like an armed man. And so he he just looked at this field and learned something because mm-hmm. he looked long enough. He saw it, but then he looked and it was in studying it that he was able to glean wisdom from it. And so if that's true about our world, then if I pay close enough attention there's going to be something deeper there than, mm-hmm. than what I see. And so when something catches my eye, I try to stop and really watch and look and pay attention. And I don't always come away with these little nuggets, but <laughs> when I do, that usually finds its way into poetry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, let's see. The, there, there were, I was talking about your birds aren't always sweet. You, you've also got a, a buzzard kind of stalking a man who's on a lawnmower. Or, or yes. I don't know if the other man's on the lawnmower. It's a man mowing grass. Maybe he's walking. Maybe yes, he's, he's pushing a lawnmower. And there was, there was a vulture just a few paces behind him walking, following him. And it, when I saw it, I thought, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Like, this, this can't be real. But it was. I thought. It's so funny. Um, I, it seems like, a, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it seems like a lot of writers are interested in, in, in bird birding. You said birding. I was going to say yes. bird watching, but yeah, I think you yes. should say birding. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you got any thoughts on that? Why do, why do writers, why are writers birders? I don't know. I can say for myself, I am just fascinated by birds. And I think part of it is the fact that they 
are amazing creatures to watch. And there are such variety. I think I've counted at least 20 different varieties of birds that have come through our backyard at some mm -hmm. point over the past few years. And the fact that they are here and nobody is overseeing like <laughs> to try to keep the bird populate, like the birds are just here that they yeah. are part of God's creation and they, they go through their, their life cycles and they um, migrate or they roost and habit habitate these spaces and they have so much character and mm. they're, they're just fascinating to watch. Yeah. There's so much variety and it, it just feels like a form of abundance. Yeah. And so it's like, we've been trying to get them closer. We've hung hummingbird feeders and been fascinated to watch them. We hung um, a couple other bird feeders and a suet feeder. And mm -hmm. this morning, this very morning, the birds came. And so <laughs> we just, we all stopped what we were doing in the middle of school just to watch the birds because they oh, finally got close. Yeah. So it's, it's just been, I don't know. It's just, I think it brings joy. Uh huh. It's it's amazing that we ever get used to the idea that these creatures can just flap their wings and soar up into the air. You know, You're right? The fact that we take how, how do we ever come to take that for granted? I don't know, and we do. Like we see birds flying overhead, and we we do just take it for granted. But when I really stop and look and pay attention, I'm I'm just amazed, and I can't not be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're giving an account here of. of that's a that's a very good reason to write. You know the the fact that that most most people um, are really really everybody about most things sort of goes on autopilot mm -hmm. and stops noticing the miracles that are around us. And I, I love the fact that a poet, you know, looks around and says, "Wait, wait, wait, wait! This is not just business as usual." Did you see that that? creature there just flapped its wings and went up into the air. Pay attention right. to this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're um, amazing. Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, moving on from birds to, uh, outer space, uh, <laughs> I love, I love your poem, death on Mars. And, um, it, you know, which again, I don't have it in front of me because I am in the wrong place, but, but the, um, this is the one where, um, I guess what it, it starts with a child saying, did you know there's no, well, actually, do you have it in front of you? Uh, I can this? find it. Yes. Um, it starts with a child observing that there's no decomposition on Mars. And then yes, you kind of play that my, out. my oldest son had read it. Yes. Bodies cannot decompose on Mars. My <laughs> son told me it's a problem and it is a problem because yeah. the, the experts, the, they're, you know, NASA's working on, this, these expedition, you know, and they're, they're thinking through all the problems and you usually think of the problems of living on Mars as sustainable air supply and food sources. But mm -hmm. the fact that bodies can't decompose is a problem. Yeah. And so, um, and you know, the, the more I thought about that, I'm like, I, I don't want to live in an environment where <laughs> you, where, where bodies can't decompose. Like there is yeah. something so meaningful. And, you know, I think that poem ends with give me air and water and dirt and spring because yeah. without the decomposition of what is dead, you cannot have spring. And yeah. those things go, they're, they're so intricately connected that, um, I don't, I don't know, don't sign me up for the Mars expedition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, I just loved the, ob the observation that as you, uh, if we don't have decomposition, then the, then we, then no new life can, 
can spring. And, and uh, I just love the, the way you put, I, I don't relish the idea of decomposition, right? That's mm-hmm. not something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, it's not the first thing you think of with poetry. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so again, I, I love that, that, that uh, change of perspective that you offer mm. there. So thanks for doing that. I love oh, it. Thank you. Um, but I think my favorite poem in the collection is Ash Wednesday. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Ash Wednesday. It really was not written on Ash Wednesday. It was uh-huh. written on an average Wednesday uh-huh. where I was sweeping up the ashes that had fallen on the patio. We had a, a fire pit that was out there, but the bottom had rusted out of it. So all the ashes had fallen down on the patio and it was a big mess. And so I had gone out one day to sweep it and my daughter followed me out the door. And so she was out there playing while I'm sweeping up and the Mm -hmm. wind caught the ash and blew it back onto (laughs) us. And so, you know, our patio is in this corner where there's not a lot of air movement, but the, the wind caught it and it just created this cloud of ash that kind of sat over us for a minute. And so I held my breath and I'm like looking at my daughter, like hoping that she's not breathing this. And then by the time, and you know, and I think she was aware of it and was just trying not to breathe it in as well. And then when it passed, like we both just started laughing Mm -hmm. and it was just this, I don't know. I I couldn't help but think about um, the lines, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then um, the, the ring around the rosy that, mm-hmm. that also kind of falls through those lines that's ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And it, those things were so closely connected in my mind. I had to write it down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, you've got, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to describe without seeing it, but if you read the, the main, what I thought of as the main lines, it's this mm-hmm. cheerful little story of a, of a mother and a daughter sweeping up the ashes and getting ashes blown on them. And, right. then, and then you enter, you know, in the interstices of those lines, you've got these, uh, these lines from, uh, from the book of common prayer and, and the, uh, you know, that this is all, a uh, well, it's, it's, it's your buzzard chasing, you know, following the, uh, it's this memento mori, you know, yes. uh, the, 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 uh, death stalking yes. uh, these happy little, these happy little moments. Yes. The, uh, the memento mori pops up a lot in, in what I'm writing. And I don't know why. I mean, it might be that. Um, so when our, when our oldest son was born, um, I nearly died. Uh, they mm. had to deliver him six weeks early um, because I, my body was shutting down. I had um, the help syndrome preeclampsia and the help syndrome, my liver and kidneys were failing. My platelets were Hmm. bottoming out. And even after the C-section, um, I was hemorrhaging and they had to rush in and give me blood transfusions and, um, in a central, uh, line in my neck. And as he was testing it, he said, if this doesn't work, she's gone. (laughs) Like it was, it was down to the wire. I went into DIC, which is, um, in layman's terms, they call it death is coming where you're clotting in places you shouldn't. And then your body is producing this chemical that makes your blood thin too much. And so you either die of um, a a clot in the wrong place or you die of bleeding out. And so it's this, this cycle that most people don't survive. And so I went through that. I was 25. Um, And so I think that (laughs) perspective has really reframed the last 14 years for Mm. me. And I, that may be why this theme 
comes up so often because for 14 years, I've been conscious of the fact that these years are a gift. Like Mm -hmm. I should not have survived that experience at any other point in history. And at most other places in the world, I would not have survived that experience. And so, um, and I'm very, I I think, I think that's always kind of in the back of my mind. Hmm. And also at the moment of new life coming into the world, right? Right. It's it's this, this combination of, of, you know, Yep. New life and the and at least the possibility of of, uh, of death. Well, mm-hmm. no wonder you're writing these these poems <laughs> that you're writing. That that makes a lot of sense. I didn't I didn't know that story. I had never that. thought about that before, but um, yeah, that I think that's that probably has a lot to do with why I think about death so much, but also see those things intertwined with beauty because mm-hmm. the life that I've been given is a gift. The life that we've all been given is a gift but I think it's easy to take it for granted. And if I hadn't almost lost it at such an early age, I probably would take it more for granted than I do. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're paying attention to the fact that birds can fly, right? That, the, <laughs> that right. most of us don't pay much attention to most of the time. That's right. Um, okay. One more poem I wanted to, to talk about that, that also feels very uh, as, as a, as a, a good um, birds are, are the you know one recurring theme, but but also uh, there's the poem uh, called Inheritance, mm. in which I guess you're digging up next things that you've you've d- literally dug up from the yard. Yes, yes. So from the, the woods, yeah, the woods behind our house were the woods that were also behind the farmhouse that Mick's grandparents lived in, mm-hmm. and so. Back when they were the the ones farming this land, they didn't have a place where they could easily dispose of like the the, the trash wasn't coming to the curb to pick mm-hmm. up whatever they were ready to throw out. Yeah. And so a number of things that couldn't be composted or reused were tossed into the woods. And so we started uncovering those things as we were clearing out the underbrush and a rain would come and kind of wash things down. And so these things would would surface. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, the first few things it was like, oh, wow, this is odd. You know, it was the, the clothesline with the, the big concrete still on the yeah, pole right. and they're just uh-huh. laying in the, you know, so we're having to clear some of that out because it's a hazard for our children. And then so uh, there were, there was an artificial Christmas tree that we dug <laughs> up for months because, you know, the bulk of it we found, but then every time it would rain, you'd see another piece of it. And, you know, um, and so, if, so I, I started keeping a mental list because they were just such unusual things. Uh-huh. And eventually I started writing it down because I didn't want to forget. And at some point I realized this list of things tells a story about yeah. the people who lived here because I knew Mick's grandparents. They took me in as one of their grandchildren. And the, the fact that I was seeing things that they had used and I knew the kind of life that they had lived, mm-hmm. it just made me want to tell that story and some form. Yeah. So I tried it yeah. as a list poem and yeah, the, the most of the poem is just a, a list. There aren't too yeah. many verbs. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just and a list of the things they used. Yeah. I think, you know, I love lists in, in <laughs> yes. I mean, they're so useful, right? I mean, a, a list in writing is, it just, it starts to feel like the world, all these nouns. Right. And I think, I think your, the fact that you like lists probably helped me pay attention to the list of things. I mean, I had noticed, you know, these are interesting objects, um, but the, 
I think I was paying attention specifically to that list because of your affinity for lists and oh, talking yeah. about that in some of our writing classes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was just talking about this in something I was, I was doing last night, the, the fact that a, um, even a short list feels more comprehensive than just a general, you know, like there's, I've got uh, Anna Green Gables on my mind right now, but, mm -hmm. but there's this, this moment where she lists about four things, you know, brooks and gardens and, and uh, woods and fields and the whole world. And just that <laughs> one little list feels longer. I mean, it, it, it feels more comprehensive than that comprehensive phrase, the whole world. Yes. And yes. It, but because it's concrete and specific. And again, that's what poems are for, right? They're yes. not for giving us big generalities like the whole world. They're for giving us a list of the clothesline pole with the concrete on it and the iron and the, I now can't remember what, what, what you found out in the woods, but, yeah. oh, but, that, but the list is a story. And, and we yeah. think of lists as just being uninteresting, you know, and yet. Yeah. There's something very powerful about the concrete. And I think that's one of the things that I've been striving for in my poetry is um, taking abstract ideas and seeing concrete ways that those are fleshed out in the world. Mm -hmm. And and I, and the more concrete I can get, the more effective it is. Like the, my, my more abstract poems, I don't like them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, I, I'm tempted to say the, you know, the abstract poems, um, that kind of, that's not what poems are for now. Mm -hmm. And then somebody can just show me some brilliant abstract poems and so I'll have to take I'm it sure all back. Somebody somewhere can write yeah. a very effective abstract poem. But I yeah. think I'm most drawn to the ones that in some concrete way show me something mm -hmm. that that I then understand this abstract idea more fully because of this concrete image. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, great. Okay. You know what the last question is in these conversations, so you're about to get it. Well, who are the writers who make you want to write, Rachel? Most of them are poets. <laughs> yeah, that makes um, sense. The, the first writer who made me want to write was Lanier Ivester. Uh -huh. And back in 2017, in, in that week when I was really searching what God had for us, I read a poem that she wrote. It was actually in the first volume of The Molehill. Uh -huh. And um, it was called I Came by Elaine. And there was something about the way she described this tension of living or being from two different places or, or being present and, and they both feel like home and that it was mm -hmm. the most natural thing in all the world, but she's mm -hmm. describing the nature of the place and the, the flowers that she's passing. And it just resonated so deeply with me because, you know, we had just transitioned back and I felt so much at home in Spain and so much at home here that that poem just really Mm -hmm. hit me emotionally. And I read it and I kind of sat with it. And then I read it again three or four times. And I think later that day was when I wrote my first poem really? in this kind of new season of poetry. I think prior to that day, I had written exactly two spontaneous poems over <laughs> my whole life. Uh -huh. Everything else was an assignment for school or something. Yeah. Um, but then that unstopped this fountain of poetry. Mm. And um, so she was the first one. But then since then, A.A. A. Milne, his uh -huh. stories and his poems 
always make me want to pick up my pen. Uh-huh. Um, Lucy Shaw. I yeah. want to be like her when I grow up. No I mean, every time I read something of her, it just, it gives me something to aspire to. And yeah. it makes me want to write, not thinking that I can do what she does, but it makes me want to be better. If that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. she makes me want to sure. try harder and, sure. and really work on the craft. Um, here's a, here's a uh, quick thing. I just recorded a, an episode with her and Ned Mustard oh, uh, did you last really? week. I, I don't know if it'll be released before or after this episode is released, but oh, that's was, what, I can't wait great. to hear it. Yeah. She is yeah, she's she's great. just amazing. She's so inspiring. Yeah. Um, Kate DiCamillo. Oh yeah. Her stories are just so like, they make me care about things that I wouldn't care. Like a, a porcelain yeah. rabbit. Like what? I don't care about a porcelain rabbit. And then I start yeah. reading her story and oh my goodness, it's yeah. powerful. Yeah, that's and great. And so she she definitely makes me want to write. I love um, that. The, the the people who make you care about stuff that you had, hadn't occurred to you to care about for, um, that's such a gift, you know? Yep. Yep. It's a gift it to really the reader. Is. It really is. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are more. Um, there are oh. there are a lot of poets that um Malcolm Guite also, when I when yeah, I hear right. him read something that he's written. I don't think I can ever attain to that. Like there's just such a beauty about what he's written, but he's another one that just makes me really love wordplay and love the sound and just makes me really want to work at my craft to yeah. hone it just, just a little more and sharpen it. Maybe one day I yeah. can, you know, reach toward something of that. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I love I love what he does. Every time I read something new from him, and there's so much new from him all the time. Right? Just, I, I, don't I know it's know amazing. I can't keep up. Cranks it out like that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is amazing. Um, and um, and I know you you have relationships, friendships with with other writers. Um, mm. and yep. I, I always love hearing from writers who who want to write because of their friendships with other writers. And I know you're, yes, you're mixed up absolutely. with books and, and yes. Uh, with yeah. Our Bandersnatch group that definitely, you know, one of the poems that's in this collection, um, I first read at one of our Bandersnatch meetings mm-hmm. and it's the one that begins. They slowly climb the hills of dust beneath penumbral shadows and mark not where the jagged peaks lie hidden in the fallows. And when I read those lines, Carrie, who was sitting socially distanced across from me in my garage, <laughs> said, oh, I love this. It reminds yeah. me of this poet and this poet. And just yeah. she just really connected with it. And it was so encouraging. And it made me want to go write something else. Like, yeah. <laughs> just let's do more of this. Yeah, right. That's great. All right. Rachel Donahue. Thank you for, for being here. I love talking about your poems. And, and I, I just really enjoyed Getting to know you a little bit more and getting to know your your poems, getting to know you through your poems. And oh, thank uh, you and so much. Here. So, so thanks, and I hope we'll. I know I'll see you soon. Oh yeah, I'll be around. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Special thanks as well to Taylor Linhart for letting us use her song Diamonds as the theme music for season three of The Habit Podcast. You can learn more about Taylor and follow her work at taylorlinhart.com. 
The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.